God in three persons, the blessed Trinity, bless us through your Holy Spirit's presence by the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We've been in the book of Romans for over a year now. Seems like it wasn't that long, but I have to tell you, uh, as I think I've told you before, from the years 1953 to 65, I think it was, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached for 13 years on the book of Romans at the Westminster Chapel in England. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that in a, in a year's time, we're halfway through the book. He would have only been halfway through chapter one or something. But um, what's that? It does indeed, Stephen. Time flies. I don't know what verse that is, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's there somewhere. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to ask you to open Romans chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to read to you verse 28. Verse 28. I would imagine that a A lot of you old-time fundamentalists committed this verse to memory. It was a, quote, memory verse for many years for a lot of us who go back a little bit. And so Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, are the called according to his purpose. Since it's only one verse, I'm I'm going to read it again. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Our Father, in Jesus' name, bless this, the reading and proclamation of your holy word. Amen. And so there it is. And the apostle begins by taking something not so much for granted, but what he's saying is, I've preached to you now for eight chapters, so we ought to know something, and we know that all things work together for good. He taught us about justification. It can't fizzle out. You can't make it go away. You didn't make it come. I hope we understand the sovereignty of God in these things. However, we do have a part to play. And so I'm going to give you this morning the good news of the verse, which is obvious. There's a little bad news in the verse for some. And I hope to unload the bad news at the end and have you leaving the place very dour and full of woe. But um, so we have before us one of the most gracious, all-encompassing promises of God imaginable. Imagine all things. I mean, you can think of so many things and say, how could that possibly work together for good? It's so bad. But the promises, all things, and I'm going to go into that deeply this morning. Whatever things befall you, whatever things have disquieted or disturbed you, Whatever affliction you're suffering at the present moment, it will be divinely transformed into a benefit for you. Everything, good or evil, desirable or undesirable, will enrich and enhance your life and will all move you towards spiritual perfection, which is God's purpose for your life. It's called glorification. We've labored over it quite a bit in the last few weeks. And just as the promise is directed to the individual, it's also directed to the church at large. 
And so we may say, whatever persecutions or tribulations or theological controversies or inquisitions have come upon the church in all of its history to the end of time, these will be woven into a beautiful tapestry for the good of the called and for the glory of God, which is the fulfillment of his ultimate purpose, where Paul writes that he might present her him to he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish before him in love, he wrote to the Ephesians. The church would be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. That couldn't possibly happen if that promise fails to be fulfilled. The New Testament falls apart if that God is unable to make good on that promise. And so we have the glorious promise, all things, Paul writes. Did anything go through your mind when I said all things? You thought, surely not that thing. The phrase is all-encompassing, hence the great assurances for the people of God. Whatever they may presently be suffering, wherever they may be in the world, the reference to all things will be emphasized and enumerated later in the epistle to include things present and things to come. You know the promises. It'll include matters of life and death. Even death will work together for good. Things carnal, things spiritual, every created thing, which means what? Everything. Absolutely everything. And so all means all. Now I stress that because... Some people read the verse and they think they're putting it in context by thinking it means something immediately mentioned. It seems to me it means something immediately mentioned if immediately means the last eight chapters of the book of Romans. It means all things. And if you look at the last part of the book of Romans, he enumerates so many things. You have to remember, Paul loves to give lists, but he never gives a full list. Who would have time? He gives representative lists. So all means all. And that's why Paul sums it up at the end of the chapter when he says, I am persuaded that not even death or life or angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come, your future cannot work against you. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. It's a wonderful, comforting thing for people to know. That's why we preach it. We don't just say, you know, all things work together for good. We preach it. We want to emphasize it. We want to herald it. Because God is worthy of the proclamation of his word. So we can be assured that all means all, friends. And we ought to recognize, if you're interested in context, the phrase work together for good let you know that it means all. It seems to me that's the answer to the meaning of all. If all things were always good, I should think there would be no doubt as to whether all things work together for good. Right? But if some things are bad and some things are good, then the statement's more astounding. In fact, that's what it makes it rise to the level of a theological principle. Nobody would have to be convinced that an unbroken chain of good things might result in a good outcome. No one would be surprised. 
Boy, he's so lucky. Everything works out great for him. Some people get that all the way to the end. But then the end comes. Oops, forgot to thank God for how good things were. Thought I did it all myself type of thing, right? Friends, but if bad things, hard things, terrible, sorrowful, excruciatingly difficult things work together toward a good outcome, then there's great glory in the promise, right? So take heart in the promise of God. We suffer for a mere moment. That's what Isaiah wrote. Our whole lives are a nanosecond of eternity. People are trying to extend them and extend them. When they finally get there and find out you couldn't extend it forever, only Christ could have done that, you realize how little you lengthened it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's almost not worth talking about them, is what he's saying. Isaiah wrote many, many years ago, I'm going to say, 2,750 years ago. How's that for a prophecy? For a mere moment I have forsaken you, saith the Lord. But with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What ought to be equally obvious to any literate person is that though the promise is wonderful and though the promise is incomparable what do I mean you you can't compare anything to that there's no other being imaginable that could make such a promise with any hope of keeping it so it's incomparable though only God could offer such a thing and make good on it we must take with the assurance of the promise the exclusivity of it as well an exclusive promise. What do I mean by that? It's not inclusive. It's not a promise to all. You got that, right? It's only to some. I've heard this verse abused all my Christian life. I've heard people do excruciatingly evil things, foolish things, stupid things, and say, oh, well, all things work together for good. So blithely refer to such a glorious thing. No, my friend, all things do not work together for good. All things work together for good for those who love God, Paul says. Right away, it's inclusive and it's exclusive, isn't it? It's only for one group. And make no mistake, the beloved apostle is careful with his words. It's not a promise for mere believers A lot of people claim to believe in Christ. They believe in the facts of things, right? It's not a promise to any of those, to any but those who have a sincere love of God. Paul was very careful in his wording. There's a reason he didn't merely infer that all things work together for good for those who say they love God. We just had to talk about it this morning. Oh, I love the word. I want to worship God. And where are you? You're not here. It's not for those who merely profess to believe in Christ. There's a reason why he says for those who love God. It's that love implies so much more than mere belief. You get that, right? Love implies so much more than mere belief. I remember back when I started out in the faith and Ken was my pastor. 
Whenever he talked about someone who was a believer that he respected, he didn't say, oh, they believe. He said, oh, they love the Lord. Oh, that person loves the Lord. That's how we spoke of it. It mattered. It's different. If your belief hasn't turned you to love, it's not real belief. Well, it's not real faith. There's a reason why he didn't just say work together for good for those who profess a mere belief in Christ. It's that love implies so much more than naked belief. For how can naked assent? You know what assent means? It's like, it's like I give you a list of things and you say, I, I, I concede that those are true. You've assented. There's no faith involved in that. Just an intellectual assent right? You can't be saved apart from love of God. Can a true disciple be a believer in God without a love for God? Think about this. You're standing at the last judgment. The judge is there, the glorious Lord. And he asks you what he asked Peter. Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know that I love you. Then do something about it. Feed my sheep, right? Can you imagine standing there saying, well, I believe you were born in the manger. I believe you had an extraordinary life, were buried and rose up on the third day. Um, I thought you were kind of mean to some people, so you know I'm, la- I'm a little lacking in love, but my belief is all intact, and I expect to be entered in. How can you possibly think you can separate that? Because what you think in your mind, you might as well be telling it directly to God. Don't wait for the last judgment. Work it out. In fact, work it out today as I go through this. Can a true disciple be a believer in God without a love for God? How can God be known apart from love when the Apostle John tells us repeatedly that God is love? Or does an increasing knowledge of God increase our love for God? What do you think about that? Does increasing knowledge of God, going deeper into the Scriptures to understand His character and His purpose, wouldn't that increase our love for Him? Certainly our respect for Him. Paul wrote that very thing to the Philippians where he wrote, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge. Love abounds in knowledge. Why do you think we add these ministries to the church? I have people say to me all the time, Sunday's not enough. So we need to gather Thursdays and Saturday mornings and Tuesday mornings, right? We need to gather. We need to come together. To know God is to love God, and to know more of God is to love God more. It would hardly be said, it could hardly be said that a true believer is not at the same time a sincere lover. Belief is a function of the head, and it must begin there, and you know I emphasize that. Love makes its home in the heart of man. You know, I looked that up. The um, Greek word for heart is cardia. You might have guessed, right? (laughs) You know what hardness of heart is? Sclerocardia. Ever hear of arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries? Sclerocardia, the hardening of the heart. Um, As you see, Greek uh, amuses me from time to time. We all know that the intellect is of primary importance in the process of becoming a Christian. Right? The intellect. You have to know some things. There's certain facts that must be known and accepted for us to presume to call ourselves Christians, right? That's why we study doctrine. 
Well, this guy doesn't believe, this whole group doesn't even believe that Jesus Christ is God, one with the Father. They don't even believe that. That's a heretical belief. That's a belief that you cannot come to Christ with. It separates you from the true gospel and the true people of God. There are certain errors that don't do that, that are not so fundamental. But there are certain few facts that we have to know. Surely we have to know that Christ was born according to the scriptures. What does that mean? Born of a virgin. But that's impossible. You know, I had, and I know I've told you this, a minister for almost two years who came right out and believed, right out and admitted he didn't believe in the virgin birth. He had a problem with that. What Christ do you accept then? What gospel is your gospel? If it didn't begin on cue, how does it end rightly? I'm talking a minister in the church. So you have to believe he was born of a virgin or it isn't the Christ of Scripture. You have to believe he died on a cross, he was buried three days, he rose on the third. These are a few of the essential facts of faith, but you could not build your, li- build your life on facts alone. And by the way, there's a name for that belief when you build your life on facts alone. Ever hear of it? Sandemanianism. Anybody? I know Dr. Roach has heard of it, but Sandemanianism. Robert Sandeman, a Scottish theologian circa 1760, posited the notion that saving faith is nothing more than simple assent to the divine testimony regarding Jesus Christ. Friends, any historian worth his salt believes in the basic facts about Jesus' life and is not a believer. Right? There's a few historians that don't believe he existed at all. That's takes a monumental leap of stupidity. There's so much evidence of it, not to mention all of us for 2,000 years, going through persecution and increasing. Every time the, the Romans persecuted the church, it increased, right? That's why Tertullian could say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was like the fertilizer that made the plants produce more or something. Simple assent to Robert Sandeman, his father-in-law, um, Robert Glass, I believe his name was. Um, they pushed this belief that all you had to do was say, yes, I agree with those facts. You're saved. Be on your way. There's nothing left to do. Answer a few questions rightly and you're saved, he taught. Love or not love? Zeal for Christ or no zeal? Can a, such a dry understanding even approach a love relationship? Try it with your wife. Give it the wife test. I got a few tests for, for um, uh, salvation at the end here, but um, give it the wife test. Yeah, I'm, she's a good woman, sturdy woman. <laughs> Does all the right things, yep. Do you love her? Well, it's kind of neither here nor there. I, I, I assent she's a good woman, you know, not bad to look at. Um, it, you think she'd go, oh, I'm so moved. <laughs> Christ is to be adored for who he is. No zeal, no love. Can a dry understanding even approach a love relationship? Would your wife feel loved because you believed she's a good person, or would it take a little more commitment than that? The heart is what is at issue in the matter of love, and not only the head, although the head's involved, right? But what does the commandment say? It says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
Friends, the world is commanded to love God. And you say, well, why do so many people die and go to hell? It's because they didn't follow the commandment to love God. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Can you say that that is your commitment? Our commitment to God as believers involves the wholeness of our being and the wholeheartedness of our commitments. So let me offer you another promise. As it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for who? Those who love him. Belief without love is a mere academic exercise. You know, I got to tell you, I, uh, I went to look at a job for James the other day, and I went into this beautiful house. It's a one of the old mansion houses in the area, and uh, there was a job that needed to be done. I won't go into those particulars, but I was very taken with the, with the client, the prospective client, and uh, he was a theology professor in uh, a local college. I believe it's a Catholic college. And he was a great guy, and we had a really good conversation, and um, what amazed me is how this PhD, with all the credentials, and I don't want to take anything from this really very fine person except for the fact that he knows very little about theology. I would say anyone in this room would teach a better course. And I even asked him, I said, so are you an expert in the Bible? And he said, oh, no. So what theology are you teaching? Right? Theology, you break it down in the Greek. Theos means God, right? Ology is the study of something. The study of God or the study of divinity. I don't like when they call it divinity. It's, it's too impersonal for me, but you can know a lot intellectually without having any sensation or love or affinity for Christ himself. And you might say, well, I've never seen him. Thomas said that. Jesus did him a favor. He may not do you and me. He came and showed himself, and he says, blessed are you, you've seen and you believe, but more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. Friends, there is no bland mention in our verse of naked belief. The implication is that a profession of faith is an empty thing until it's clothed with love and commitment. James very famously offered this distinctive regarding what we so blithely refer to as faith. You believe in one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Remember, sometimes Christ had to silence the demon because he wasn't ready to say who he was and all the demons knew. <laughs> the people standing there didn't know he was the son of God, but the demons knew. Demons know more than people, even Christian people. Belief's nothing apart from love. In fact, it's less than nothing because, because without love, our testimony is empty. There's hardly a historian worth his salt that would not agree with us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he lived an extraordinary life. Some would even assent to miracles. You know, people, miracles don't get you saved. You could see a hundred miracles a day in your life, and you would not have any more love for God necessarily. And I've tried to get that across to people. You know, when I was in college, I went to a Catholic college. I studied religion there. 
And you learn a lot about the facts. And, and the Bible was, of course, included. Although you, could, you had to have a religion elective, but it could be Hinduism. It could be, um, you know, Baha'i or something. It could be any religion that you wanted. And uh, I, of course, I just wanted to study the Bible. I had no understanding of it other than I knew it was the basis of, of all Western literature. And it might be good to know the symbolic references that all the great writers refer to. So I, so I studied it there. Um, but I really learned nothing of the depth of a relationship with God. In fact, we had a, a book, a text given to us. Maybe you've heard of it. The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Anybody? Albert Schweitzer. Anyone remember Albert Schweitzer? What was he? World War I-era philanthropist. Did a lot of great things. Was a great musician. Very much a Renaissance man. Was a great philanthropist. Um, missionary of sorts around the world. He was a medical doctor, gave his gifts to heal people all over the world. And he wrote a book decrying even the historical existence of Christ. He claimed he didn't even walk the earth. It's total myth. A man with all those credentials, with all that intellectual power, denied something so obvious. I could almost understand because you have to have faith in Christ to know certain things and to have a certain affinity for him and a love for him and, a, and have the reality of him in your life so close that you might actually pray to him. I can see just being smart enough to say, well, yeah, he certainly walked the earth in Roman times. There's so much extra biblical evidence of that. Even if you never read the Bible, you would know that. Look at the church, the Christianity throughout the world, all through the medieval period, all through the modern period, beginning with Luther, right up to the present day, the postmodern era. Look at all the explosive churches all over the world. You would have to believe that it was founded on something. And he even rejected that. It's amazing what the human mind can conjure up for itself when it's left in darkness. With all the good works he did, he had no promise to rely on in the end and led many astray. Belief is nothing apart from love. And even people that don't love God, many people believe in miracles. You know, it's funny. So often when someone finds out I'm a minister of the gospel, one of the first things they do is tell me about a miracle that they saw. I had a friend do that recently. He, he knows I'm a teacher. We talk a lot. He's a local contractor and he's a friend. And um, he wanted me to know that he's, he's had some um, relationship with spiritual things. And he told me he had a camera in his barn. And he went back and looked at the tape and he saw all these spirits flying around in the camera. And I said to him what I think you should say if someone says something like that. You should say um, what I said. I said, well, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about that. It doesn't talk about spirits flying around. I think they were fireflies, but you can think what you want, you know. But he was trying to, and he was saying he was reading his Bible lately, so I didn't want to squelch the whole thing. But um, seeing something miraculous doesn't get you saved, and I can prove it. Even his opponents assented to certain miracles. At the tomb of Lazarus, we read this. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? This man works many signs. 
The Council of Elders in Jerusalem said the same of the followers of Christ. Luke writes, What shall we do to these men, Peter and John? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny the miracle. The, the unbelievers believed in the miracle and thought nothing of Christ. Now, belief in miracles is not saving faith. faith. Hold your talk of miracles when you're preaching the gospel. It might just take you to a place where someone says, I had an experience too. I'm like you. You're missing the whole point. Like Jesus said, you, you came out to the wilderness because you wanted more loaves and fishes. <laughs> you remembered the loaves and the fishes, he said. <clears throat> Belief in miracles is not saving faith, and it's obvious from the verses that it has nothing whatever to do with love. Even if you saw a miracle in your life, how does that make you love Christ? You have to know Christ. A miracle does really almost nothing. I said that, and I preached that, and I taught on uh, a series on miracles. If you're very careful in the Bible, you'll find that miracles are sometimes hundreds or thousands of years apart in the Scripture. It seems because it's, you know, it's a, a fairly compact book that they happen in all over the place all the time, and, and they're really not. They're really not. They were little seasons of life where they, where they happened, right? And so... I had someone, I preached, I said that fact, and I've had, had someone in the church come up to me and say, you know, we really need a miracle in our life, and I know you don't believe in miracles, but I went, when did I ever say, I don't, can't you keep two thoughts in your head at one time? Of course I believe in them. I just don't think they have the same impact as many other people think they do. Not that I don't pray for them now and then, I do. I've been a recipient of miraculous healings. People, my wife has been as well. I, I much assent to the gracious glory of God to heal us upon request. But even that doesn't get a man saved. A lot of the people that came out to Christ that were saved, that were healed from uh, lame, lameness or blindness or deafness, they're not all necessarily believers, and we shouldn't think that they are. Remember what Paul said, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, a noisemaker. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and teach theology in the colleges and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor because I'm a really good guy, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Some emphasize professions of faith. Others emphasize personal testimonies, but the Lord looks at the heart. And guess what? So should we. Oh, but pastor, we can't see the heart. Only God can see the heart. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. I think, you ever hear the, the phrase, he wears his heart on his sleeve? You can tell a guy's heart a lot by what he says and does. Now, you can't anchor it and be certain and add a book to the Bible about it. But remember the parable of the two brothers, the two sons, I think it's called. Matthew 22, the Lord tells the story of the Father, he goes to his brothers, and both are asked by their father to work in his vineyard. Boy, anyone with sons knows about this. Come out and work in my vineyard. One says no, but he repents and goes to work anyway. The other says yes, but he never shows up, right? And so Jesus asks, which of the two did the will of God? They all got it right. Everybody knew the heart of the guy who did the thing and didn't say the thing. It ain't about saying, it's about doing. 
And don't correct my grammar. I say ain't for, for impact sometimes. Wakes us up. So the answer was easily arrived at, even by the young apostles. The one who showed up did the will of God. Love is known by the actions that it prompts. That's the definition in the lexicon of agape. Love's invisible. I asked one of my nieces one time, I said, does your mother love you? She said, yeah. I said, how do you know? Show me. She goes, I can't show you. I said, well, how do you know she loves you? And she said, well, she takes care of me and she hugs me and holds me and feeds me and tickles me. And I said, oh, so it's actions. So love's invisible, but by the actions, you know something is true. Yeah, men can see the heart too. We do it all the time. Sometimes we're just being judgmental, but other times we're being discerning. Love is always known by the actions that it prompts. So I'm leading up to the the more difficult news of the verse. Who are the called? Who are those who love God? The heart of man is more easily seen than many of us like to think. Love of God is identical with love of truth. Did you know that? Jesus said, I am the truth, right? And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The love of the truth. Wait a minute, I thought I just had to believe. Paul says you have to love the truth. You have to be yearning for it, want to be close to it, want to be intimate with the truth. So who are the called? Well, it seems to me that's the essential question. Who are the called? We know there are great eternal benefits for this group of people, but who are they? Are you one of them? Note the apostle did not simply say to those who are called. Now, I know your ESV does say that. So everybody with your ESV, hold it up today. No, I'm just, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. I want to hear it hit the floor. Just for today. I got nothing against the ESV, but in this, in this particular instance, the authorized virgin, the old King James, got it right. I'm going to tell you why. All right? I know the ESV says that. I know the NIV, the ASV, the Amplified, all just say those who are called. The new King James says those who are the called. All right? It's unfortunate that they don't see the importance of the definite article here. And I can hear people protesting, but pastor, I've done the research and the ESV is right. It's the literal translation of the verse. There is no the in the Greek. There is no the in the Greek, I can tell you that. Now let me just tell you, when you think literalism is such strength, I take the Bible literally. When you think that, I'm going to read your heart. No, you don't. Nobody does. And I know you don't because when I look at you, you have two eyes, and by now you should have plucked one out. And you have two hands. And do you think that's too harsh? Do you own two coats? You should only owe one. All the poor people in your neighborhood should have be wearing all your coats. I have a closet full of coats. I'm such a hypocrite. People take the Bible literally. It's not to be taken literally in every of its presentations. Sometimes is a literal presentation. 
If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter into heaven with one eye than go to perdition with two. I get that. There's no the in the Greek manuscript. In this particular case, the literal is acceptable, but it's not preferable. I don't say they're wrong, but it's not preferable. And translators, you know, one language, there's a trouble with translating. It takes great skill because you can't always go with what the person said. You have to go with what the writer meant to those people he wrote to in the first place. And that's not always transferable language to language. There are languages without the word, a word for grace. I was watching a, a movie the other day, which I highly recommend, by the way, called Amistad. Anyone remember it? We watched it when it came out in, I don't know, 99 or something, because Andrew's father was in the movie. He was an extra. It was filmed down in Newport. And so we all watched it. It's a great movie about a slave ship where the slaves rebelled, and they went before the courts to get released. They went all the way to the Supreme Court, and John Quincy Adams was their defense lawyer. Up until that time, Matthew McConaughey was the defense lawyer. But um, they needed a translator for these people because they spoke a language no one spoke. And so Matthew McConaughey, who was the, their actual lawyer, was saying to the translator, um, they were saying, you said after we were pronounced innocent, we'd be free. Because he told them that, but he didn't know that it could get appealed to higher court and higher court. And that was, to them, it was like, what kind of place is this? Right? These aborigines were saying. And he said, tell them that I shouldn't have said that. I should have said this. And he goes, I can't say should. There's no word in Mendy for should. He goes, in Mendy, you either do something or you don't do it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's the, what we need to remember. Not every language transfers rightly. And a man who's scholarly and understands context can add a definite article in a place where I certainly believe it belongs. The the, in my opinion, is rightly inferred. It's inferred from the balance of the New Testament and the context of this epistle regarding the difference between those who are called and those who are the called. And if there aren't those, if there's no difference between called and the called, then rip chapter 9 out of your Bible. It's all about the called, and I'll prove it to you. So I submit to you that if we presume that those who are called receive the benefits of the promises of God, our whole theology falls apart. Why? Because all men are called. Did you know that? We talk about calling. Well, I have a calling. All men are are called. Paul said it to the Athenians. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. God calls everyone to repentance. 1 Corinthians 17.30 We may say very simply what Jesus said in the parable of the great feast. Many are called, few are chosen. Calling in and of itself is overrated, friends. Remember what Paul said to the Colossians. You were who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, and here it comes, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister." The gospel was preached to every creature under heaven in Paul's time by Paul's own words. 
So here it is. If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, these are the called. Those who heard the faith and didn't move away, which was preached to every creature under heaven, these are the merely called. Jesus called everybody, only some came. And at the end, there was only a few. His mother and some of the other Marys, right? And the disciples were there at the cross. It was only a few. All those people came out at the triumphal entry into, the, into uh, Jerusalem. And they saw him riding in according to Zechariah's prophecy. And he's on the colt of a donkey, right? And he comes riding in, hail the son of David. And at the end, they were saying, give us Barabbas, right? So everyone's called. I submit to you that those who are called are distinctly different than those who are the called. Those who are called are all men who've heard the call. We just talked about it. How many people have heard the call and they're not here? And they said they would be. Those who are called are men who hear the call. Those who are the called are those who heed the call. That's why it's good that they added the article. You may be tempted at this point to take a breath of assurance. <laughs> Guess I'm okay. <laughs> I've heeded the call. Well, let me challenge you this morning. Perhaps we should test your faith this morning. So I devised a few tests. And they're multiple choice. No, I'm kidding. They devi- I devised a few tests that could be very useful in our self-determination of our position in Christ. And do not presume that self-deception is not a far-reaching phenomenon. There's a lot of warning in the New Testament. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, right? It's very easy to be deceived. So let's look at a few things. We are those who are far more comfortable judging other people by their works and ourselves by our good intention. So I offer you my first test. My first test is called the Malachi test. Now, I call it that because there's a section in Malachi that I'm not going to use here where God actually says, test me. Prove me now in this. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse, and I'll open the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing such there'll not be room to contain it. He begins the whole thing by, how will a man rob God? How have we robbed you, God? He said, in tithes and offerings. But he said, test me. Test my side of the bargain. And so the Malachi test this morning is this. God puts his priests to the test. He asks them why they offer defiled food on my altar. Remember, the priests had to always find the perfect sacrifice. No blot, no blemish. Right? You can't just choose the sacrifices that you would have thrown away anyways. You know, like you do when you feel so good about yourself, when you take all your junky, ratty clothes and throw them in the goodwill box. I feel so good giving that stuff away. (laughs) Those will boxes are all over Lakeville, and they're all full of old underwear. But um, I'm being cynical, forgive me. Why do you offer defiled food on my altar? The priest asks in return. They say, in what way have we offered you defiled food? God says, by saying that the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? So here comes the Lord's test. You ready? 
Give it to your governors. You'll give it to me. Will you offer it to your governors? Would he be pleased with you, the Lord says? Would he accept you favorably? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Did you give your best to God, or did you give the old, worn-out, haggard part of yourself? In how many simple ways do we do the same? How many times would we be late for work? Uh Uh-oh. Ken would say, now you're meddling. How many times would you be late for work? I'll tell you how many. Zero. Because your governor, your boss, would not accept it. He won't accept the myriad of lame excuses that you pass off to God as legitimate reasons for dishonoring the call to worship over and over and over again. I get the text. The texts come in. I won't be there. I can't do this. This came up. That came up. I'm telling you, be careful of that. Be careful that you're giving your best to God and not to someone else because if you're giving your best to your earthly master, then he is your God. And he has become an idol. That is the definition of idolatry. So much so, I think the church has become comfortable with our own sloppy worship practices. So much so that we are as hard-hearted as the priests who could not see their offense to God. Maybe worship is just not as important to us as it is to God who says the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Maybe we don't take it as seriously as God does. There's another test. You've heard of it, the soil test. Jesus said, he who received the seed, which is the word, on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, And the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. That's the soil test. The things of the world. Hey, we all have them. Oh, you don't understand my boss. Yes, I do. I've been a boss all my life. Good, or rather, God interfered in our lives. When God saved you, he interfered in your life. I remember what an interference it was. He disrupted my routines. He wrecked everything I thought I knew. Nothing was right. I was wrong. I was really, really smart, though. And I convinced everyone how smart I was and how right I was. And God interfered in that. I could have hated him for that. But he put faith in me to believe in him. And when I turned around, I had a lot of old people that didn't want to be around me anymore. Because I said, oh, yeah, I know I said that. I don't believe that anymore. And what do you think they called me? Same thing they called you. You hypocrite. I'm not a hypocrite. I just changed my mind. (laughs) Can't change your mind? So we continue in our lives with him. Are we now too self-satisfied to let him interrupt our lives with daily and weekly duties? Aren't you glad he interrupted your life in the first place? He wants to interrupt your life all through your week. God is the great interrupter, capital I. Friends, this is a dangerous time in history. And this is why I bring this up. This is why I, I lead in with the, uh, 
with the verses from, from Matthew 10 in my prayer this morning about being brought before councils and not caring what you say. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say. And brothers will turn against brothers and fathers against sons. And Right? I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. This is a time like that, if not the time. I submit to you that this is a dangerous time in history for people of faith, and we're surrendering so much of what we are for the sake of worldly convenience and sinful distractions. And I'll tell you when it really became known to me, when Christmas became more powerful in the Christian conscience than Christ. I don't care if you put the Christ in Christmas or not. Keep the Christ in Christianity, at the very least, and escape idolatry. The church is closed. I never saw anything so idolatrous in my life. And then they did the same for what? New Year's? Is there anything more pagan than New Year's? Friends, make a resolution, but do it today. Forget about New Year's. Do it on my birthday. We're surrendering so much of who we are to the world. These are the days to be not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We use the term so often without going to to the next, oh, we use that verse rather, so often without going to the next verse. This is what the next verse says. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That is fearful to me. And I've heard people explain it away. Okay, there's a little loophole here intellectually. We get out of that. But it doesn't make me comfortable. There's no sacrifice for sin for the one who had the knowledge of truth and turned away, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. I'm not comfortable with explaining that away. I'll let Brian do that in the Hebrews study on Saturday morning. <laughs> Number three. I forgot we have a great Hebrew professor in the room. That's Hebrews chapter 10. The obedience test, very simple. By the way, I came up with a lot of tests. Garen was actually helping me. I said, how long do you think I could preach? The obedience test. Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? The obedience test, it's simple. Why do you call me Lord, And don't do the things that I say. I thought if I was the Lord, you had to do what I said. I thought that was the understanding. He who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation. Let me tell you as an expert in foundations, that's not a good thing. Against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And I used to say to the kids on the job, and great was its fall. That's what the old King James says. And it fell, and great was its fall. And the ruin of that house was great. John said likewise, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That's why I always say we're not under the law. We're under the law of delight. We delight to worship God. Ken always used to say, My week builds to Sunday. It revolves around Sunday. That's when I come out to worship God with his people. It's the most important thing in his life. And he inspired my young faith with those words. 
How about the cold water test from chapter 10 of Matthew? And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Cold water test. Jesus said, he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. By the way, you don't want to be the goat in this. You want to be the sheep, okay? Jesus is not the good goat. He's the good shepherd. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty? And it goes on. Isn't it interesting that the righteous just did it? They didn't know they were earning something. They didn't know it was being noticed. They did it because they had love of Christ in them. And so they asked almost innocently. The righteous asked, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Works of love are the unmistakable sign of love. Friends, lovers of God don't hate humanity. They love humanity. And then the final test for today, I'm going to to do this for a few weeks, but the final test for today is the first love test. What's your first love? You know, you can't go to Jesus at the last judgment and say, oh, I loved you greatly. I loved one person more, but you really were right up there. You were in the top. Lord, you were in the top ten my whole life. Every now, there was an, you know, people voted. You know, there were awards given. No, the first love. Christ is your first love or you're an idolater. So he said to Ephesus, which was a great church, I know your works, Jesus said. Your patience. That's a good thing. That you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Hey, give it the wife test. I love you a lot. I mean... I love Gertrude a little more, but you're right up there. It doesn't work. Nobody wants to be second, certainly not the one, only one who's worthy to be first. If you don't know his worthiness, you don't know him. What things do you love more than God? I can tell you they're the things that need simply make a whispering call to you, and every spiritual responsibility falls in line behind them. Those are the things you love more than God. It's not all this pressure came on me and I couldn't do what I was supposed to for God. No, it's just a light breeze of temptation came and you, and you fell to it. And then I got the text. Perhaps we've forgotten that the Lord is orderly. First things first with the Lord. He gives us a list of priorities. And though we may have many things right and do not escape his notice, order is a part of righteousness. First things first. The love of God expressed in worship and obedience to his commands is always first and foremost in his sight. And so he said, 
to the church of Ephesus, and we say this to all the churches in all times. Remember, therefore, from from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. In other words, you put me on the back burner, but there's a way back. Come back. Do the first works. Works are important to the Christian. They show what's in our heart. Repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I don't know what the lampstand is, but I suggest to you it's the light of the knowledge of God in the church. In the ancient temple, there were four gigantic lampstands. If you've ever seen a picture of it, it's an awesome thing. Repent. There's a way back. Do the first works like you used to do or else I'll remove your lampstand. In other words, you can't just keep putting me second place. I'm your first love or no love at all. Father, in Jesus' name, let us order our lives rightly before you. We know the way, Lord. We know the way. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Oh, Father, let this accrue to our benefit. Let us be those who have heard the word of God and submitted to it, who know the Christ of Scripture and recognize you, O Lord. We pray, give us this knowledge anew. In Jesus' name, amen.